EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt-level capacity. EPC Power is headquartered in San Diego County, California, and recently opened an engineering and sales location in Helsinki, Finland, to support the growing global demand. Visit epcpower.com energygang to learn more about the utility scale in CNI product lines, and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Ed Crooks. Now, this show is going out on Earth Day, Friday, April the 22nd, and the goal of the Earth Day movement, it says, is to drive positive action for our planet. So in that spirit of positive action, we're going to be focusing today on solutions to the climate and energy crises we face. Joining me on the show today, we have Emily Chasen back again. Emily's the Director of Communications at Generate Capital, the green investment firm. Hello, Emily. How are you? Good to have you back. Hey, Ed. Great to be back with you. So uh, what have you been up to? How have you been since you were last on? Yeah, just working on lots of different stuff in sustainable infrastructure, as always, at Generate. Um, it's been a busy few months. The deploy, deploy, deploy phase of the energy transition is here, we like to say. So um, yeah, just been busy in cross-solar, waste, renewable energy. How about you? Yeah, busy, busy. As you say, the crisis really has absolutely been occupying all of my time. We've just got a new big report out on the lessons we think can be learned from an energy crisis for the energy transition. That's been absolutely kind of sucking up all of my time. Uh, very relieved to say we just got that published, in fact, just today. So there'll be something else for uh, people to look out for. Really interesting stuff, obviously, and really kind of challenging in many ways to be thinking about this crisis and what it implies both for short term and the ways we respond to this crisis in the short term and also for the longer term and the energy transition. So it's been interesting, fascinating stuff, but it has been very, very busy. Also, my pleasure to welcome back Dr. Destiny Nock, who's an assistant professor of engineering and public policy and civil and environmental engineering at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. Hi, Destiny. Great to have you back. Thanks very much for joining us again today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So it's been a while since you were last on, hasn't it? I think you were here in the summer of last year. What have you been working on since we last heard from you? Yeah, I feel like saying that I've been busy is probably a bit of an understatement. Uh, the students keep me ripping and running back and forth. We have a lot of modeling efforts going on in my team. So we've been looking at quantifying hidden forms of energy poverty, like energy limiting behavior of those that may forego air conditioning and heating usage. We've also been looking at building out large-scale people impact assessments for how different energy transitions will impact minority communities and building out forward-looking assessments. So it's a lot of really exciting stuff over here and trying to understand the sustainability and social justice trade-offs of different energy transitions. Right, and some of those issues about energy poverty and, as you say, the energy transition and social justice incredibly topical right now really made kind of urgent because of everything that's been happening in terms of soaring energy prices, the way that the energy crisis is really hitting people hard in their pockets. And that's going to be a great subject to discuss on the show and something we're going to be getting into later on. As I was saying, we're going out on Earth Day this year. How do we feel about Earth Day? Is this something you take seriously? I'm never quite sure. It has a slightly sort of, what's the word, kumbaya, kind of hippie-ish, kind of do-gooding kind of quality <laughs> that makes me always inclined to be slightly sceptical of it. But uh, what do you think? I mean, Destiny, what do you think? Is uh, Earth Day something you take seriously? I feel like Earth Day is kind of like Christmas for the planet where you need a day to really bring people together to remember that like, hey, this is something that we really care about and we should put our focus on it. Now, you know, that's not to say that, you know, it shouldn't be on our minds year round. But I do think that having like a day to remind people that like, you know, we need to come together, we need to look at trees, we need to look at climate change, we need to really like think about this stuff and talk about this stuff and creating an avenue for that is very important. Just like, how at Christmas, you know, you start to see a lot of donations go for like Toys for Tots, a lot of people donating to the Salvation Army, giving to the food banks. And I think that that's like a really important social movement where Earth Day, it kind of reminds people to look at a really important environmental movement. I love that. That's a fantastic analogy. And as you say, it would be great if we could keep Christmas spirit going through the year and maybe Earth Day spirit going through the year again. That's a great point. 
Emily, what do you think? Do you take any interest in Earth Day? Yeah, I mean, Jerry, we're always joking that every day is Earth Day because we're working so hard on sustainability all the time. But I do think, you know, Earth Day has been around since the 1970s. It's definitely, like Destiny was saying, a great time for awareness. It's definitely come a long way, you know, like from where I remember growing up in the 80s, Earth Day was all about, you know, recycling and the Silent Spring stuff that was sort of all out of that movement. Um, And now there's like a lot more that people can do. Um, It's still, I guess I want to be careful about focusing all of our Earth Day stuff too much on individual responsibility when there's so much like systemic change we can be making. So I think um, maybe it's just a sort of a time to think about, you know, what we can actually be doing to waste less throughout society and um, hopefully changing the tune a little bit toward that. So is that a potential danger, do you think, in kind of encouraging people to think, it's all about that voluntary action. It's all about those things that we personally can do. And it kind of diverts attention away from systemic changes that need to be made. Well, <laughs> climate solutions are all about awareness in some ways. So we definitely want people to you know, have this chance to take awareness of everything. I think um, also we just want to be sure that we're aware of where we can have the biggest impact in our lives. So sometimes you don't want to get distracted by a tiny thing that you could be doing. But if that is something that motivates you toward bigger action, then that's amazing. Emily, I really love your point about how, you know, we need to not just focus on the individuals, but like look at the group as well, because it is a big collective action to solve climate change and we need to work together, which is one reason why I'm really excited about the IPCC report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change because they just laid out a lot of solutions where we can focus on and try to work together to solve this climate problem. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great place to take this conversation first. As probably listeners will know from our previous podcasts, the IPCC is going through this uh, cycle, what they call the sixth assessment report. They do these kind of regular updates uh, every few years. I think it's eight years since the last one, really trying to pull together the current state of the entirety of what the scientific community knows about climate change, various different aspects. Hugely complicated exercise, tens of thousands of scientists contribute, and very, very large output comes out of it. This most recent report, the one that was published just this month, I think the main report's getting on for 3,000 pages long. Absolutely huge, very detailed, lots of very complex stuff in it. But I've said this before, really worth reading, and at the very least, really worth reading the the summary for policymakers on this latest report from this month is only about 65 pages long. That's much more accessible. And if you want to really understand the current state of the art in terms of scientific thinking, the best that the world's scientists can do in terms of understanding how the climate is changing and why and what the effects of that are and what we can do about it then you really do need to read these IPCC reports. And as you're saying, Destiny, the latest one focuses on mitigation. In other words, what can be done to make climate change not so serious, to mitigate it by curbing emissions and preventing global warming from running up to truly disastrous, catastrophic levels. I looked at that report. I've been reading it over the past couple of weeks. It struck me that there's kind of good news and bad news there. The Bad news is that unless policies are strengthened, unless the world adopts more ambitious climate policies, we're very unlikely to hit that goal in the Paris Agreement of limiting global warming to well below two degrees centigrade. But on the other hand, there's also good news, which is that it is still possible to achieve that goal. It's absolutely not out of sight. In fact, even the more demanding goal in the Paris Agreement of limiting global warming to just one and a half degrees centigrade that's still achievable. Difficult, but it could be done. And there's also a lot of interesting detail in the report about ways to cut emissions, different technologies that are available, different things that can be done. And one of the things that particularly struck me was what it was saying about the costs of cutting emissions and saying that there's potential there to cut emissions from their 2019 levels by a half by 2030, using technologies that would cost no more than $100 per tonne of CO2 emissions avoided. And in some cases, would actually save money, but at the very most would cost this uh, $100 per tonne of CO2. 
And that's not a crazily high price. Put that into context, current price of emissions allowances in the EU and the EU's trading system, that's about $85, $90 or so per tonne of CO2. So these seem like technologies that are fairly attainable, fairly cost efficient, things that we can do, as I say, to make a very significant difference in emissions in actually quite a short space of time. So as I say, when I looked at it, I thought there is good news and there is bad news. But I do think the good news is actually very encouraging in terms of the tremendous potential that's there. Emily, what did you think of this report as you read it? Did you find it encouraging? Um, I don't know if it's encouraging. It's sort of motivation to get busy. Um, there's a lot in the IPC report right now that, you know, says the time is just now. There's too many coal-fired power plants we're still doing. There's still a lot of fossil fuel infrastructure that's just coming in, but we're like not really on track to meet this 1.5 degree goal. So when you look at that, you it's just sort of a big dose of realism. There's a lot we can do to protect forests and peatlands and all the natural carbon stores. And there's a lot more we can be doing to be focusing on this technology that takes carbon dioxide out of the air. Hearing that it's almost inevitable, almost no matter what we do, is a little bit frustrating, but also like motivating, right? There's so much we can be doing today to change our lifestyles, to change our infrastructure. It's just, it takes a few years for this infrastructure usually to get in place. You know, like you can't snap your fingers and suddenly have all this renewable energy or snap your fingers and have all this carbon capture and storage. So really, I think for me, it just highlights the importance of energy efficiency and reducing consumption and waste in the system today. And thinking about, you know, what we can do with the fastest payback so that we just buy ourselves more time to deploy all this other stuff and get this technology ready for the future, because we have to be spending so much more on renewable energy to make this transition, to have a chance of getting much closer to those goals. Investments just sort of fallen short of where it needs to go, even though so much money is flowing into the sector. But even if you look at it, it's not that much money. It's just like a few percentage points of GDP overall to convert the energy sector. So I think we just need to get more people, um, more groups behind it. And so we need that kind of social and political change that we've been talking about. Yes, Earth Day has to become a social and political change movement for sure. I guess that's one of the biggest joys that I had when reading the IPCC report was that there was a lot of discussion on the social aspects of mitigation and like demand services, because a lot of times I think it's easy to forget that these technologies are being used by people. And if we're going to, you know, do this energy transition, it's all about looking at the way that people are using and interacting with technologies and then how that actually impacts the systems that we need to build. And so I think it kind of represents a huge like paradigm shift in like the analysis of the IPCC report to have so much behavior integrated in there as well as like energy efficiency and how people are adapting and using different technologies. And so that's probably one of the biggest benefits I saw. How easy do you think that is then? It's one of the things I always worry about when people talk about climate solutions is the extent to which you're relying on behavior changes, asking people to change their lifestyles, to do things in different ways. People like to go their own way. People, particularly in uh, developed countries, have built infrastructure, acquired habits that shape their lives in particular ways and are often hard to shift. And if you come to people with climate solutions to say, well, a crucial part of this is changing your behavior, people are often going to be resistant to that. How do you approach an issue like that? I mean, as you say, given that we are now thinking that actually behavior is really important, how do you encourage and persuade people to get on board with those behavior changes? When you look at behavior change, I think that it's really easy to say that behavior change is really slow. But then you would actually be discounting the fact that we're in one of the fastest changing times of our like generation slash since the beginning of the earth. Uh, like things have never changed faster than they are right now. So, for example, right, think about how long it took you know people to get information just you know, 200 years ago, and now people are getting it at the tips of their fingers all the time. And people are complaining that their children are very like impatient, right? And they're used to being able to just ask Google. And so I think when you look at behavior change, 
A part of it is showing people like the immediate benefit, which has been historically a huge disconnect of climate behavior change, right? It's always like, okay, you should do this because in 50 years, you're going to thank us. And people are like, well, my life kind of sucks right now. So how can I make it better like right now? And that I think is like a big challenge. But when you know, people are looking at adopting phones over newspapers, right? Or watching television over listening to the radio. That was actually a very quick behavior change. And I think with energy behavior change, I think it is important not to just, you know, focus on like kind of like the really far out looking future, but also like on the immediate needs too, because there are inequities that are currently existing in the power system. And we also have environmental challenges and people will be weighing those decisions but it is kind of hard to ask a person like, hey, you know, you're suffering right now or you feel like this change is going to make you suffer more, but do it anyway. Right. <laughs> and that's going to be a big challenge if we're trying to look at like the speed of behavior change. Yeah, that is fascinating. So I want to try on you something that literally just popped into my head this morning, which I think is actually kind of interesting, but uh, I may be wrong, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts, which is the question of, imagine if climate change wasn't a problem, how would our energy system be different? Imagine if you completely forget about it, you know, to what extent would you move away from fossil fuels? And as I say, just kind of thinking about this as I was making the tea this morning, it occurred to me this is actually quite an interesting question, because it raises questions of, well, what about local pollution, right? So, for instance, one of the things you probably would do anyway is get rid of coal because of all the pollution problems created by coal generation, use of coal in uh, industry and homes. You might well shift to a lot of EVs for urban transport because, of, again, of local pollution issues, air quality and things like that. But then you'd probably be prepared to accept uh, continuing use of fossil fuels for quite a lot of uses where EVs are not so great and for aviation and long-distance transport and things like that. I think that for the natural gas, I mean, you know, natural gas leaks and uh, explosions, right? Those are things that people tend to not enjoy. And so I think that those would also be promoting like a shift away from natural gas. And a, a large part of the transportation sector is transporting those different fuel types. Now, maybe we would keep our personal cars that are fossil fuel based, right? But I think like with EVs, I think one of the big challenges is the fact that they do take so long to charge, but I think technology is growing. Like people are also talking about having like wireless chargers for EVs. And so uh, who knows, one day you might just be driving down the highway and your car is all of a sudden recharging itself. I mean, that's kind of like a crazy futuristic thing, but it, it maybe could happen. Um, and so I think with those types of technologies, even if climate change wasn't necessarily like the problem right now, there are still inequities that make these technologies like desirable to shift away from. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think the other thing you might want to throw into the mix there is the question of price volatility. We might want to stop using oil and gas so much because those are globally traded commodities and the prices can be very, very volatile, as is often the case for commodities. And when prices go up, that can cause real hardship to people. And so shifting to other forms of energy, to more reliance on renewables, use of EVs and so on can help cushion people from those kind of price shocks. So that's something else I guess you might want to think about. So to that point, though, and going back to your point about, as you say, it's harder to sell people on addressing climate change as being problems they're going to avoid 30 or 50 or 100 years into the future and saying to people there are things that can be done to make your lives better here and now give us some examples of that then so what are the things then if you were to say look at this technology or this particular type of business or this particular behavior change things that are really going to improve people's lives in the short term what would you point to I would point to the renewables because that is what's driving down or what can really drive down the cost of electricity overall I think that one of the biggest challenges we have with electricity is that people feel like they can't afford their bills. And that is going to be something that renewables can really help with because, you know, the no fuel costs as well as, you know, being able to be deployed locally around. Now, some other technologies I think that are coming online are going to be a diversity of renewables. So typically when you hear of like renewable electricity, a lot of times people think of like onshore wind 
or solar photovoltaic. But we also have seen that concentrated solar power is coming online and the cost is falling a lot. And so um, for the listeners, concentrated solar power uses a lot of mirrors to heat up a tower as opposed to uh, using silicone. And I think that's really important. Offshore wind turbines, tidal technology, as well as um, wave technology, I think is going to be really important. And then developing baseload renewable energy technologies that are also not polluting is going to be very important. So seeing a lot more storage come online, a lot of different types of storage is going to be really important. And then, as Emily mentioned, the energy efficient technologies are going to be vital because one way to build a better system is to just not need such a big system in the first place, right? And that has to do a lot with energy efficiency. Now, on the other kind of side of things with the transportation side, I really am excited about EVs. Now, I I do wish that they would charge faster, but when I rode in one, man, that thing was just so smooth and so nice to ride in. I mean, I have an old car that my dad helped me fix up and... I didn't realize cars could be so quiet, (laughs) like the engine just rattles and you hear some parts moving in there and it's just, you know, it's so different being in an EV and you just feel like you're in the future when you're riding in it. They are amazing, aren't they? I so agree with that. I got taken for a ride once by uh, someone who has a Tesla and it was astonishing. Uh, As you say, the kind of the science fiction feel of how quiet it is. And just the acceleration that you get out of it as well is really quite amazing. Yeah. And my friend, he works at Tesla and he like showed me the autonomous driving technology, which I will admit that I am a skeptic of. But when I was riding in it and that car was seeing the stoplights and it was seeing cars come into it before I could see them in the rearview mirror. I mean, that to me was really amazing technology. Yeah, that is amazing, isn't it? I am, like you, deeply skeptical about full autonomy, but even partial autonomy and things that could be done to help the driver, it is really amazing what they can do now. So Emily, what about you? When you look across technologies and sectors, what are the things you're most excited about at the moment? Yeah, well, I think you guys are onto something talking about all the different ways that you can see sort of more immediate impacts from renewables, energy efficiency, climate. I think it's hard to make a change, even when we set all these like net zero goals for 2040, 2050 out there. It's hard for people to make a change that they think is so far away. Like you really want to see immediate benefits when you're going to make a change or you want to see more profitability or more convenience or something, um, a cheaper electric bill, something like that. Um, So I think, you know, one thing that we don't focus enough on is all the health benefits that come from some of these changes to renewables, Um, you know, just like lowering emissions like nitrogen or diesel in the air that makes it so much easier for people. We see like a lot of the corporations and stuff that want to change to electric buses on their campuses or use it to transport their employees. They want to do that because of the health benefits, partially because they're paying for everybody's health care in the U.S. at least. And they want to make sure that it's a cleaner environment for their employees. So um, there's a lot of benefits to that that I think we don't talk about enough on renewables improving health. I was driving um, on vacation with my daughter for spring break. We were driving in Colorado and we drove past a coal-fired power plant and just saw the rows and rows of trains of coal piled up to go into the coal-fired power plant. And it reminded me of other trips we've taken to Europe or something and driven past all the wind turbines and commented on the wind turbines and how I don't know, much more pleasant it seemed to do that um, than the big piles of coal on a train. So there's, I guess there's lots of benefits. Maybe some people think the turbines aren't that pretty. I don't know. I thought they were prettier than a train track full of trains. But um, yeah, at Generate 2, obviously, we're always focused on different types of decarbonization and different things you could be doing. Um, I think this key looking at baseload power and people really wanting this like resilience in their power and just knowing that they don't have to depend on the grid entirely or if it goes down that they you know have a backup um, I think that's really going to drive a lot of demand in the coming years so I think a lot of the technologies like renewable natural gas that are interesting right now um, and where there's more supply starting to come online it's because you can use sort of existing infrastructure and um, not without that many changes so we have trucks that are ready for regular natural gas so if you use renewable natural gas made from food waste or manure or some other type of landfill waste something like that is more sustainable where you're preventing it from going to the atmosphere you're preventing the need to drill for natural gas and sort of affecting the demand for it 
more sustainably. Um, having situations like that where you can just sort of use an existing infrastructure and make a pretty quick swap over, I think that's something that people are really going to get behind. Yeah, so that's really interesting. One of the things I was particularly struck by in the IPCC report was the question of aviation. And there's a really interesting table in there which compares kind of different changes and different lifestyle changes, behavioral changes that people can make and the impact that it'll have on their emissions. And so things like switching to using renewable energy instead of fossil fuels or switching to using a heat pump instead of gas for heating, those kind of things, switching to a vegetarian or a vegan diet. And one of the things in that table that absolutely leaps out is aviation. And the chart basically shows that if you take just one less long-haul flight a year, that can be almost as significant in terms of reducing your emissions as giving up using a car completely, which seems really striking. So, Destiny, what do you think about that? I mean, if we're really serious about cutting our emissions, our own personal carbon footprints, do we have to stop flying? One thing I was thinking about with the planes, I was talking with one of my students recently because she was saying, like, you know, maybe I should drive instead of fly because driving will be less emissions. But I was actually talking with her about how in order for you to have less emissions on the plane, like you would need to have enough people get off the plane so the plane doesn't even fly in the first place, right? Because if you still have one person left on the plane, then you actually didn't save any emissions. You just added the emissions of your car driving because this plane is still going to go from like point A to point B. And recently I was in Boston giving a talk at MIT and I was trying to come back to Pittsburgh. And my flight got canceled because the flight attendant was in New York, right? And so because the plane didn't come from New York to Boston, my plane, even though it had the pilot and all the passengers and the plane, couldn't go from Boston to Pittsburgh. And so then some of us ended up driving, some of us ended up taking the train, but most people actually ended up just rebooking different flights. And I think that that's like one of the big challenges with, you know, saying that, either, you know, driving or taking an EV or taking the bus or the train is going to lower the emissions because you still need to be able to get enough people off of the plane so the plane won't even have to fly in the first place. And I think that's a big challenge because, I mean, you do see sometimes planes are flying like half empty and that's just because of the logistics of what they actually need to travel to get the plane to go from point A to point B anyways. And so then now, even if we have the planes empty, if the rerouting is just flying around a bunch of empty planes, okay, you're going to put out slightly less emissions because the plane is lighter than if it had people on it. But now you still have the plane flying and you have people driving everywhere. And unless everybody's in electric vehicles, right, then the operation emissions are going to be a bit higher. And then even if everybody isn't in EVs, we still do have to think about decarbonizing the energy sector. And so I think that there's this really big part about how everything is so interconnected with our economy and the way that we're moving around, you know, the planet, that it can be a big challenge. EPC Power manufactures self-developed energy storage smart inverters made in their American factories with gigawatt level capacity. These inverters have industry-leading response time, advanced control features and grid-forming capabilities. EPC is headquartered in San Diego County, California. To support growing global demand, they recently opened an engineering and sales branch in Helsinki, Finland, and are launching an East Coast factory this year. EPC Power is expanding its presence as the largest US grid-scale inverter manufacturer, delivering over a gigawatt of energy storage inverters to date, and over two gigawatts by the end of this year. Visit www.epcpower.com energygang to learn more about their utility scale and CNI product lines and schedule a call to learn how they can help you power your energy storage projects. EPC Power. Excellence in power conversion. So there's a couple of other things I thought were really interesting in the IPCC report. One of them was quite a big focus on carbon dioxide removal and ideas for both carbon capture, where emissions are generated from an industrial facility, power plant, whatever it might be, and also what they call direct air capture, literally sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and storing it somehow. And that's 
particularly timely this month because we've just had this very interesting announcement from this outfit called Frontier that are putting up a lot of money. It's $925 million backed by various companies, a lot of tech companies. I think Meta, owner of Facebook, Alphabet, owner of Google, putting up money for this. And basically what they're trying to do is create a forward market for carbon capture and removal and to say they will pay for ideas that companies have for capturing carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it. That's potentially a very significant development, I think. They're basing it very explicitly on the model of funding that governments and charitable foundations put up for vaccine development and basically saying, if you manage to develop a vaccine, then we'll pay you for it. And in the same way, what the, this outfit Frontier is doing is saying, if you manage to develop efficient technologies for carbon dioxide removal, we'll pay you for it, potentially could create a big leap forward in that technology, I think. How do you feel about these kind of ideas? Is there something we're going to be relying on to prevent really catastrophic outcomes for climate change because we're not going to be able to decarbonize the energy system any other way. In fact, we're not going to be able to shift off away from fossil fuels as rapidly as we would need to. And therefore, we're going to have to have other solutions and in particular, capturing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Do you think it is going to be essential in that way to have those technologies? Destiny, what do you think? I think that it is going to be essential to have the carbon removal technologies as a part of our climate change solution plan, just because of the progress has been a little slow (laughs) towards the Paris Climate Agreement. And now the IPCC report is saying that we need to even make greater strides. I believe that one of the challenges with such rapid need for deployment is that challenge with trying to get the behavior and efficiency technologies deployed. One of the challenges that we're seeing in energy transition is that there is a lot of housing stock that also needs to be updated in order to accommodate these electricity infrastructure upgrades like solar panels. And you you need to upgrade the circuit breakers. You need to upgrade the wiring in the houses. And I think that that's going to be a challenge for you know, getting those last few parts of the population to shift towards electrification, especially away from like natural gas heating and oil heating. And so with the carbon removal technologies, I think that's going to play a big role uh, because we do need to think about how can we sequester carbon and how can we reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Right. And as well as those household energy use issues that you're talking about, quite a few issues, aren't there, in hard to decarbonize industries, industrial processes that really aren't susceptible to having wind and solar power used to make them work. Aviation, been talking about it. It's a really tough one to work out how you're going to electrify aviation, particularly long-haul aviation. Other types of long-haul transport, again, probably are going to be difficult to manage without some continued use of fossil fuels, certainly of liquid fuels, maybe advanced biofuels, other solutions like that are going to work. But there's a whole lot of power to weight ratio issues that means it's really difficult to put batteries in long haul trucks or in aircraft and so on. So I do agree with you that some amount, possibly quite a significant amount of carbon dioxide removal is going to be really important as part of the mix of climate policies to get us towards net zero. Have you had a look at this Frontier initiative in particular? Do you think this is interesting? Is this something that's going to be promising, do you think, in terms of pushing the technology forward? Yeah, I think people have gotten much more realistic about the need to invest in carbon capture and storage over the past few months as this IPCC report came out and said that we really have to make sure this technology is viable if we're going to try and keep going toward that 1.5 degree goal. So I think the Frontier Initiative that just came out suggests there's some momentum starting to build in this space. There's some signs of market demand, them really coming out there and saying, we are going to plan to purchase 925 million worth of permanent carbon renewal from companies. That's something that says, okay, well, I can invest in trying to create these carbon capture technologies and know that there's going to be a market for it. So I think that will be really powerful in the space. And it's pretty exciting to see these companies have the technology that's starting to get to this more proven stage from a very nascent industry. I think also to Destiny's point, when we talk about 
clean energy and we're talking about just making it accessible because we talk about all these hard to abate sectors. There are always going to be these hard to abate sectors in the economy, whether it's air travel or steel or construction. But we don't want a hard to abate sector to exist just because clean energy is inaccessible to certain types of people. So I think when you look at the Build Back Better Act and there's these clean energy tax incentives that supercharge installation of renewable energy or they're meant to supercharge installation of renewable energy and increase accessibility for like low and middle income households to that so that everybody can sort of be lowering their bills from the energy transition. I think that that's an area that we really also have to focus on as well. There are houses that, you know, no one's been able to look at the energy efficiency of, and there's ways to um, improve also the environmental livelihood of those houses so they're easier to live in as well. So I think that's an area that we want to focus on as well is just making sure that we're looking across society when we're trying to make these clean energy improvements. Yeah, that's really interesting. And another thing I wanted to get your views on in this IPCC report is the question of infrastructure and investing in low carbon infrastructure in particular. Something that I've talked about in particular quite a bit on this podcast recently. Something I am slightly obsessed by is just how hard it is to build anything in America these days and what a big problem that is for climate action because if you can't build anything, you can't build low-carbon infrastructure that we badly need. New low-carbon generation, new transmission lines, storage, carbon capture, facilities, whatever it might be. All that stuff across a lot of America and a lot of the world, in fact, is really hard to build. I think I've got the quote here from the IPCC. They say, barriers to feasibility would need to be reduced or removed to deploy the technologies that are needed. And they say there's all kinds of barriers that stop investment in low-carbon technology. They can be geophysical, environmental, ecological, technological, and economic, among other things. But the two things the IPCC highlights is particularly important are what it calls institutional and socio-cultural factors. And I don't know if you saw, there was a really great story in the Wall Street Journal just in the last few days about this offshore wind farm that Ersted is building off the Hamptons. So Hamptons in New York, Long Island, very, very upscale beach resort kind of area. Off the coast, Ersted wants to build an offshore wind farm. They've got most of the permissions they need, but there's this little hamlet there where you couldn't see the wind turbines or anything. There would be very, very little disturbance, except they would be running the power cable to connect the wind farm under a road that goes through this little hamlet, where I think the average home value is $3 million, one of these places where a lot of people live only in the summertime. And they had managed to delay construction on this project by starting a legal action saying you shouldn't be able to run this power cable under the road. Who knows what might happen? Might cause pollution, might be all kinds of problems. Therefore, you should stop the project. I think they actually lost that case in court. In the end, the project has been allowed to go ahead and construction is starting. But it's taken six years for them from project first being launched to finally get to the point of being able to start construction because of all the issues with permitting, approvals, legal action that they faced. And it just strikes me as a great example of, as I say, how difficult it is to build stuff in America and the kind of problems that really make it hard to invest in low-carbon infrastructure in particular. The argument on the other side, I suppose you'd say, well, you can't just throw away all protections. You can't make it possible for anyone to build anything anywhere. And there needs to be checks and balances. There needs to be a system that restricts damaging development, harmful exploitation of natural resources, communities, and so on. But it does feel to me like maybe we're getting the balance wrong on that. And it is interesting, I think, now that the IPCC is highlighting that as an issue. I know, Emily, what do you think? I mean, you were talking earlier about investing in green infrastructure is what you do at Generate. Do you agree that's a problem? Um, I think people are always hesitant about new infrastructure um, and new projects in their area, whether it's a solar farm, a wind farm, a hydropower facility. You know, there's hasn't been the greatest track record from energy infrastructure um, and being located near there in the past. So people are understandably like a little bit nervous about that. I think you really want to be sure we're getting like communities behind these types of projects and that we're aligning it with the community's goals as well when we're installing projects. That's something we're really focused on when we go make investments. But I think 
what you're talking about is that it takes a long time to build infrastructure. It's not just like a software company or a software project that you can create the technology and then deploy really quickly across multiple places and multiple people. Um, I think infrastructure just takes a long time to get built. So you have to have a lot of people agree. You have to have a lot of supply chain systems working together and a lot of people ready to build. So um, yeah, it just takes a long time. So we have to be ready for that and put that into our system. We're not going to be able to snap our fingers, but we can still make this all happen. We just have to know it's going to take some time. But is that time just a fact of life then? Is there something we can do about it? It feels like we ought to be able to do better. Um, yeah, a lot of people talk about there's ways to speed up permitting or to speed up transmission connections. Um, and like even just there's plenty of solar fields out there that are built now that are having a hard time getting connected to the grid. So we want to make sure that we're making those sort of human caused delays disappear more quickly. <laughs> So Emily, I think that you brought up a really good point about how important community engagement is in this permitting and processing process for building these technologies, because we also saw the same thing or a similar thing happen with the Cape Wind project off the coast of Massachusetts when the community didn't really feel engaged. Then you saw that Cape Wind got locked up in a ton of legal battles until it just didn't make financial sense to move forward with Cape Wind. And I think that that kind of says a lot about how people need to be invested from the very beginning. And then companies could save a lot of money, right? They could save a lot of time by getting people on board with this change. Because I think when people feel like they don't have any power or say over what's happening to them and their communities, that's when you're going to see a lot of pushback, particularly with energy transition. We've just been talking about how one of the key ways to promote adoption of low-carbon energy is by showing that it can improve people's lives in the short term, not just in the long term. And it's been making me think about one of the most saddening things I've read recently, which was a newsletter from someone called Martin Lewis. Uh, He's a British guy who gives personal finance advice. The latest edition of his newsletter is called How to Heat the Human, Not the Home. And what it is, is basically a list of tips for people who can't afford to heat their homes because of soaring prices for gas and electricity. It includes advice like wear layers of warm clothing, eat a hot meal at least once a day, including uh, eating soup and porridge, and using energy efficient uh, USB hand warmers. It's a really grim reflection, I think, that in some of the richest countries on earth, there are millions and millions of people who need this kind of advice because of the way that oil and gas and power prices have soared over the past year or so. That guide was published for UK readers, but it's clear that it's a much broader problem around the world. A recent study published by Nature found that in the US, 16% of households experience energy poverty, defined as spending more than 6% of their household income on energy. And that was using data from a couple of years back from before the latest round of price rises. And you can see the concern and anger that's been caused by rising energy costs in all kinds of countries around the world, in Peru, Kazakhstan, many other places as well. So energy poverty is clearly a massive problem today and getting worse. And it's definitely an issue and something we need to worry about in the energy transition is the risk that as we try to address climate change and cut greenhouse gas emissions, we actually risk making energy poverty even worse. Now, Destiny, I know we've been talking earlier, this is a big interest of yours, as you were saying at the beginning, it's one of the things you've been looking at in a lot of detail over the past year. You uh, have been looking at something you call the energy equity gap. It's a very interesting concept, I think. Can you just uh, explain to me what it is? Of course. The energy equity gap is the difference between high-income and low-income households in terms of when they would start using their cooling or heating systems. So if we're thinking about, you know, our interaction with energy in the household, one of the main uses of energy is to cool and heat your indoor temperature to a comfortable environment. There's evidence that there is a large connection between productivity in the household and health in the household in relation to the indoor temperature. So for example, like if it's too hot in the home, then people may be putting themselves at risk of heat stroke and heat illness. If it's too cold in the home, then they may be participating in unsafe temperatures, like using space heaters, which are known to potentially catch fire and cause other issues to the home, as well as higher levels of asthma in homes that are not at comfortable indoor temperatures. 
So the energy equity gap actually looks at using smart meter data to quantify when do people turn on their air conditioning or heating units and what is the difference in terms of outdoor temperatures between high income and low income groups. And what we've done in our study is we've looked at Arizona uh, by collaborating with the Salt River Project utility company. And we've actually found that low income groups tend to wait four to seven degrees longer in terms of the outdoor temperature to turn on their air conditioning units, right? So if on average, the high income group is turning on their air conditioning unit when it's 70 degrees outside, the low income group may be waiting until it's 77 degrees outside in terms of the average temperature. And we know that when we're thinking about averages, because Arizona is a desert type climate, I mean, this means that the maximum temperature throughout the day can be a lot higher than that. So when you talk about energy poverty, that's a really stark example of how it bites on people, that people are not able to turn their air conditioning on sooner. People have to suffer in less comfortable, more dangerous conditions for longer, simply because they can't afford the AC. Yeah. And I think the other thing that is a big challenge is during COVID, now more people have not been able to go to what we would call cooling centers or cooling zones because they've been stuck in their homes. So before the pandemic, when it was too hot in their homes, people may have gone to the library to just sit and read. They may have gone to sit in a cafe at the grocery store or you know go to work, <laughs> for example. But now people are in their homes, maybe they didn't have weatherization, they don't have insulation. We've been talking about, you know, heat the human, you know, there's also the cool the human side of things. And it can be really challenging when you're just stuck in your household, especially when you don't have the infrastructure. So for example, I have been living in Pittsburgh for about three years. And during the pandemic, I realized that my kitchen is a cold sink. Not just that the sink is cold, but literally like all of the heating leaves my house through the kitchen. And I would be on Zoom in my thermal with my you know house coat wrapped around my legs, wearing slippers. I actually did get a couple of those hot water bottles to kind of hold around me so that I would be warmer. But then you see other people on Zoom who are basically in t-shirts <laughs> during the pandemic in their homes. And you're like, wow, like we're experiencing two totally different things, which I think you only really realize in this Zoom environment, because now you are seeing people in different indoor environments. Yeah, that's a great point, Destiny. I think we're not really going to make it through the energy transition if we don't think about building better systems than the ones that have existed in the past. So we really need everybody to be involved in this. It needs to be a huge effort. You know, in the Department of Energy, they're talking about building a climate army now and people like working on this. So if we're going to get people engaged in this, we also need to make sure they're seeing the benefits of it. So when you think about energy poverty, one of the reasons we love investing in community solar at Generate is that people get to share in the benefits of the energy transition, even if they don't own their own roof and they can't put their own solar on, they can still sign up for community solar and get money off of their electricity bill that way. And so we think that's an asset class that just enables people to participate and to all benefit from this potential abundance we get from investing in energy. I was thinking about how this week there was this study that came out of Wyoming about adding carbon capture systems to existing coal-fired power plants in Wyoming and how much that would cost. And they said it would cost the average residential rate payer an additional $100 per month. And of course, that's not very good. That's a lot of money for the average person to add to their power bill every month. And so carbon capture systems on coal-fired power plants seem kind of difficult to make sense economically with that kind of money. Also, it's not that much money. So maybe the ratepayer doesn't have to absorb it. And that's what we really need to be thinking about is inventing these business models where we get to share the cost and we create better systems than the ones that we have. Sorry, you mean it's not that much money in the sense of? It's a lot of money for a ratepayer if they have to absorb that cost themselves. But it's not that much money for the system to absorb if you come up with a better model for what they can do. Right, got it. And as you say, certainly right now, going to people and saying, hey, good news, you can be carbon free only for a mere $100 a month extra on your energy bill. Not going to be very popular. Exactly. And I mean, of course, there is a cost to carbon, like maybe that's really the cost of carbon, but you have to make sure the right people are paying. So what are the implications of this then for the energy transition? When you think about 
the impact of decarbonizing the energy system on energy prices for consumers, evidence is pretty ambiguous, right? I mean, the prices of wind and solar power are coming down a lot, and that should tend to make energy cheaper. But on the other hand, as the proportion of wind and solar variable renewables on the grid increases, you need more technologies to back them up, and you might need storage or natural gas power plants, or you might need hydrogen or whatever it might be to support those technologies when they're not producing a full capacity. And that could tend to make energy more expensive. So it's kind of seems like it's a case of swings and roundabouts, as we say in the UK. It's not clear cut which effect is going to be more important. How do you feel thinking about decarbonisation then, given all that research you've done, as you say, given how important energy poverty is, and presumably the numbers that you were looking at when you did your recent research, that was before the latest round of price increases and everything and the upward pressure on energy costs that we've seen recently. So whatever you're seeing in the data before probably is even worse now. How do we tackle that? And what can we do, do you think, to make sure that as we progress towards a low carbon energy system, we don't penalise people that are already suffering very badly from energy poverty? There is a lot of debate about how energy transition will impact the prices. So as you mentioned, on one hand, it could drive costs down because we do have these, I guess, free fuel (laughs) renewables with wind and solar. But on the other hand, we will have to deploy a lot more transmission lines uh, in order to facilitate the sharing of energy across the U.S. And so one thing that I'm thinking is that We currently have a lot of different energy prices across the U.S. And what we actually may see is kind of like a shifting where right now the Northeast has very high energy costs. And then there are some other parts of the U.S. which are much lower. And so you may see like a rebalancing, especially as we are shifting the technology. So I think that's something that we're going to have to really grapple with. But with energy limiting behavior, there is this challenge where if energy costs rise, we could actually see a lot less of a demand than we would have originally predicted. And I think that that's something that we're going to have to bring into this discussion. But then, of course, on the other hand, if energy costs fall, we may see a lot more energy usage because currently right now people are limiting their energy consumption in order to reduce financial strain. And so then we may actually risk underbuilding the system. And we know that the demand supply balance is the one thing that really drives right our electricity system because you can't store electricity in the electrical form. You have to convert it to something else to store it. So for energy transition and decarbonization moving forward, I think that our understanding of energy limiting behavior really promotes the need for innovation on the demand side of things. Right. We have a lot of talk about the supply side. So what technologies we can have, we're deploying new technologies, we're doing R&D across different renewable energy sources. But we really do need to think about the R&D on the demand flexibility and how we can not just match supply to a fixed demand, but also match demand to a supply. That's really interesting. And I was saying earlier on, we've just published this big report on what we think of Wood Mackenzie about the implications of the energy crisis for the energy transition. And basically one of our key conclusions is exactly that point you're making about demand and supply and saying that as much as we might want to influence the supply side for energy and often in a lot of ways changing the supply side is easier, it's the demand side you've really got to influence because for as long as the demand remains, supply has to meet that demand somehow And you can get some of these consequences that we've been seeing in terms of price spikes and everything, price volatility caused by having inadequate supply to meet demand. And so the thing which really has to change, and actually the central thing for decarbonisation, is to drive demand away from fossil fuels and to really think about all the different ways we can do that rather than focusing on supply. Yeah, and one way you can do that is, as we mentioned before, behaviour change, right? Convincing people to change their behaviour. But on the other side, we could do that with technological innovation, because right now we have demand flexibility that's really focused on the peak shaving. So we would look at times of very high demand and try to cut off those peaks and make some people who are really comfortable in their homes already a little bit more uncomfortable. But on the other side of things, we can 
do the opposite and say, okay, well, we know that there's a lot of energy limiting behavior going on right now. So what we can do is go to these households that are already super uncomfortable in their homes and actually fill out those valleys. And that could potentially decrease the ramping needs that we would see in those evening peaks, right? So now we're kind of doing the opposite of how people traditionally think of slimming down the duck curve. So instead of cutting off, you know, the head and the the tail feathers, right? We would actually fill in the back side or I guess the middle side of the duck and try to make it more of like a flat line. We should probably just explain what the duck curve is for the benefit of any listeners that aren't familiar with it. Explain what is the duck curve and why is it called the duck curve? <laughs> so the duck curve is called the duck curve because it looks kind of like a duck. So in the morning, when people are first waking up, you start to see this increase in energy usage. And then it kind of tailors off in the middle because of solar technology coming online to the grid. And so that's going to reduce the amount of energy demand that the utility company sees. Then as the sun is setting and people are getting home from work, you start to see the second peak, the evening peak, go much higher. And that's when you're going to need those high ramping capability natural gas turbines. You're going to need to use a lot of your hydropower to meet the demand. And then, of course, as people go to sleep, it tapers off again. And so if you look at the curve, it looks kind of like a duck. And to explain then what you were talking about earlier, so basically your issue is with that fat tail of the duck in particular is the problem, right? When the sun's gone down, you're not getting that solar generation, but everyone's at home and they're cooking dinner and they're watching TV, maybe they're charging their EVs, everything else they're wanting to do. So you get that big chunk of demand that's hard to meet there. And you're saying there are ways you can tackle that. Yeah, so I'm saying that there are ways that you can tackle that in terms of not needing such a high ramping capability because... One of the challenges with renewables is, you know, the lack of dispatchability. And so you would need to build a lot of storage or a lot of other technologies in order to be able to cover that peak. And so right now, uh, a lot of utility companies will use natural gas peaking plants, which actually do supply a lot of emissions in a really short period of time because they are trying to ramp up the energy production so quickly and so in order to reduce the need for the, I guess, ramping or the increase in energy, one of the goals of electricity systems is to actually have a very flat curve so that you can always just run your power plants at their almost maximum capacity. And so what you can do is fill in the middle. So when we see solar energy taking down the demand there are most likely going to be some renewable energy technologies like wind or storage that are just going to be sitting idle in the middle of the day. And so they're not going to be running throughout the day. And so then they're going to need time to come back online. That's where the natural gas peaker plants kind of fill in. So, for example, nuclear doesn't like to turn off and on. And so if you have a nuclear plant that's off, it may take a couple of hours for it to get back up to speed in order to produce enough energy for the community. And so if you could actually keep the demand curve really flat, then you could actually just keep the nuclear on all the time. You could run the hydro consistently, right? You wouldn't need to have these peaks up and down of a variability in your baseload power plants. And so if we actually could figure out a way to send energy to those homes at maybe a discounted time of use pricing rate, then we can actually flatten out the demand curve and make it easier to predict our energy production needs on the supply side as well. Ah, got it. So you're basically trying to fit in the ducks back. Yeah. Right. Bitcoin mining, of course. That's that's <laughs> one of the things, right? People suggest for that purpose. Yeah, we could only mine bitcoins in the middle of the day. <laughs> well, unfortunately, we do just about have to leave it there. Before we go, though, we, of course, have to uh, have the energy gang's tradition of the free electron. These are personal things that we've all brought in. Uh, Emily, what's yours? Yeah, so I was looking at maybe a story, given it's Earth Day, looking at a story this year that I thought was probably worthy of the free electron title. And I was thinking about a story from Turkmenistan, where there is this kind of number one tourist attraction there 
called the Gates of Hell, or it's the Darvaza Natural Gas Crater. Yes, I know this place. <laughs> you know it's this wild. Place. The pictures are amazing. Yes, yeah. I've even seen people on YouTube. They like go and roast marshmallows over it, and it is a burning pit of natural gas that's been burning for decades. The Turkmenistan president said he wanted to close the natural gas fire because it's been burning forever. And even though nobody really lives in that area, they're losing valuable natural resources. And there's not that many tourists that actually go see it. And, you know, they could be selling more natural gas. And But even just closing it, I mean, it seems like there's this huge open pit that is flaming natural gas and it's been burning for decades. And there's probably lots of situations like that where there's natural gas leaks or methane leaks. And that's such a tough thing for the atmosphere. So I think as important as it is to like build solar and renewables, we also have to think really aggressively about, you know, capturing methane and like controlling it and finding ways to keep it out of the atmosphere, um, whether it's through food waste or through, you know, capping wells. Yeah, it really is a fantastic thing to see. I would urge people if you haven't seen the pictures or the videos that there are on YouTube, go and look at it because it is absolutely stunning. I think it's from the Soviet Union, isn't it? It's kind of that era. They realized they had a gas leak. And they thought, well, what's the safe thing to do with this? We should burn it off because we don't want gas building up and then causing a huge explosion. So they set light to it deliberately, I think. And they thought it might burn for a few minutes or a few hours. And it's been burning for decades. And it's been burning for decades. Absolutely insane. An incredible thing to see. And really interesting, actually. I mean, as you say, they're now talking about shutting it off. Yeah. What are they going to do? I mean, is that actually going to be possible? Is it one of those things you can shut off maybe with an explosion? Or do you then run the risk of making the problem even worse because you blow an even bigger hole with more gas coming out of it that's going to be burning. I have no idea how they're going to do it, Ed, but I think that at least they're going to give it a try. Yeah, it is going to be definitely a fascinating story to watch. So, uh, Destiny, what's yours? My free electron is the fact that the Senate confirmed Katanji Brown-Jackson to be the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. And this happened at the beginning of April, which to me is amazing. I feel like we have so many firsts going on. And as a person who did not grow up in the 1950s or 60s, right, I, I actually thought we were kind of beyond the first. But every time I turn around, I feel like, you know, we just got the first black woman vice president, right? We got the first black woman still on the Supreme Court. And I feel like this is always a reminder that just because it hasn't been done, it doesn't mean it can't be done. And it doesn't mean that there's not someone who's trying to do it. And so when I think about, you know, kind of bridging this into like our discussion on like climate mitigation and, you know, just trying to change our energy system. Yeah, okay, it's going to be really hard <laughs> to battle global warming. But when I think about how, you know, hard it was watching her Senate hearings or, you know, how difficult it is to be the first anything, right? The first person on the moon, all the things that could go wrong, all the people trying to stand in your way, and yet people do it anyway, right? And that's what we should take away from her life lesson of, you know, climate change is really tough, but we should just do climate mitigation and climate adaptation anyway. <laughs> that is a fantastic point. That's a really great thought. I feel like we should just end the podcast here because that would be a great note to end on. <laughs> You have to hear my free electron, though, which is much less elevated than that, which is Elon Musk and his attempt to buy Twitter or his possible maybe attempt to buy Twitter. Like with a lot of things Elon Musk does, it's kind of, is it a joke or not a joke? It's kind of a bit hard to tell. It, I do think he's an interesting character, though, and he is someone, obviously, there's a lot you could say on the negative side of the ledger against him. But on the other hand, he has also been a tremendous force in transforming certainly the auto industry in the US and around the world, and arguably the broader clean energy industry and the whole debate about clean energy. How do you feel about him, Destiny? Is he someone you admire? Do you think he's a force for good in the world? What's your view of him? Uh, admire and force for good. Not, not a loaded question at all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I guess typically I tend to stay out of the dealings of billionaires, but I feel like with Elon Musk, there is this, I guess, like other kind of quality about how he is trying to revolutionize so many fronts right now with Twitter. I don't know exactly what he wants to revolutionize with Twitter, but after watching the Dogecoin debacle, I'm a little bit nervous about what he wants to use Twitter to do. Uh, so that one was kind of interesting for me. But I, I guess I feel like 
when we're thinking about like kind of billionaires and how they could run these huge like social communication devices, it's a little bit nerve wracking, right? Because that is so much about the messaging. Like, am I going to start seeing Tesla ads everywhere? Right. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, if he has this much money to buy Twitter, like $43 billion, how come Tesla is so far behind on manufacturing their cars? Like, I would like <laughs> them to just keep it moving because they're, it's what, like two years on back order now or something with Tesla? Have to totally agree with that. As you say, if he really can't think of anything better to do with his money than spend it on Twitter, I think that's a sad reflection. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned the Dogecoin. I don't remember the Dogecoin debacle. What happened there? So the Dogecoin debacle, that was one of those cryptocurrencies, which everyone says is a meme coin, right? It's not really connected to anything. Somebody just kind of made it as a joke. But then all of a sudden, it goes from being worth like 0. 0.0001 like cent to being worth like 10 cents. And when you think about how many people have, you know, bought in, like you're just turning a big profit. Well, Elon Musk on Twitter goes, go Dogecoin, go right to all of his followers. And all of a sudden, then it pops up even more. And I'm like, dang, if I had just held out a little bit longer until he put that tweet, I could have had more. I sold back when it was like way not enough money to even care about. But then when you think about how much that influenced the market of just people flocking to this cryptocurrency and all of a sudden now like shooting it up in terms of value, even though like it's not inherently connected to anything like that was I guess a bit unnerving to me of like how you know just one tweet can change a market. Tis world, isn't it? Absolutely amazing the power that he's got. And as you say, that kind of army of fans and supporters that he has, which I guess, as you say, is he a force for good? It's not that simple. It's complicated. <laughs> Sometimes he does kind of really amazing and valuable things with that power and skill and energy and everything that he's got. And sometimes he does stuff that's pretty silly. You know, I feel like one of the challenges we have with like even celebrities is trying to hold them to our ideal because, you know, there's no doubt that Tesla revolutionized the electric motor industry, right? Like without Tesla, EVs would not have pushed as far as they have. But then you see these lawsuits coming from these black employees at Tesla who are really upset about the working conditions and how they've been treated, right? And so then you have this, you know, huge kind of combating forces of like really good for climate change, maybe not so happy with all the employees, right? And so then, you know, we can't just hold these, I guess, celebrity figures at this pedestal, right? They are people and people are not perfect. And I feel like when we try to start thinking of them as like, always being a force for good or always being a force for bad. I think we lose sight of the fact that like at the end of the day, these are people who are shaping our realities, right? I mean, technically, we all are shaping our realities every day. Indeed. And we could absolutely have a podcast doing nothing but discussing what did Elon Musk do this week? <laughs> but <laughs> we sure. should probably try to avoid that. So unfortunately, we are going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much, Destiny, for coming along. Been great talking to you. Awesome. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Emily. Thanks, Ed. And thanks, Destiny. It was great being on with you. And many thanks to all of you for listening. Please do let us know what you think. As usual, give us your comments, suggestions, ideas for subjects we ought to be covering. We're very keen to hear from you. For as long as Elon Musk allows it, we will still be on Twitter at, at the Energy Gang. And I'm at Ed underscore Crooks. And I am at Destiny Knopf. And you can follow me at eChasen on Twitter. And we will be back in a couple of weeks with all the latest news and views on what's next for the energy transition. Until then, goodbye.